Hello and welcome to the Space Rocks podcast. Alexander Milas here, and it's a very special edition of the podcast because it's all about that time that we went to Latitude Festival here in the UK. Now, if you don't know about Latitude, it's all about music as well as culture and education. So we could have been more pleased to be invited to put up a panel that we called Space, the New Final Frontier. Rounding out the panel was uh, Hero Baldwin, a magnificent musician, our very own Mark McCorkran, the Senior Advisor for Science and Exploration over at ESA, Susie Inber, a planetary physicist and also the winner of BBC's Say You Want to Be an Astronaut competition, and Jason Isaacs, a wizard with a difference, a.k.a. Captain Lorca, of Star Trek Discovery fame, as well as yours truly. So we started out broadly, possibly with the most important question of all. Why are people so curious about space exploration? Why does it universally resonate? You know, it's a great question why it is that we left Africa, we, we went around the world, we started exploring, we found extreme places to live. I mean, just think of the Eskimos, right? I mean, is that sensible? But there they are. Um, so exploration is part of what it means to be human, very fundamental. And in the last 60 years, we've managed to go beyond our own Earth into space. It's in 1961 that Yuri Gagarin first went into orbit. And in that period since then, we now have six people in the International Space Station circling overhead. And that's just the first step. There's, there's the moon to go back to, and there's Mars. So I think it's a very human thing, and many of us wish we could do it or really enjoy watching other people do so it. So there's no point, is what you're saying? There's no... At all. There's no real point to it. Well, that, that's the real question, right? I and mean, we'll, we'll come back to that later on. You know, is it, is it just that we do it because we're human? Or, as some people would say, that we're going to save the human race by going to Mars? I, I think we can save the human race here on Earth first, but uh, it is innate curiosity to begin with. I mean, it's certainly what drives me, and maybe Susie as a scientist as well. It's where we get there. I don't know. I think everyone forgets we're already in space. Why aren't you going <laughs> to... You're going to explore it. You can't not. True. Oh, yes, yeah, so from my perspective, as a planetary scientist, obviously... Uh, Discovering more about all the planets in the solar system is really fundamental to understanding not just our solar system, but all the other solar systems out there. So it's a really exciting time to be a planetary scientist, actually, as we discover solar systems throughout the universe. Um, but as a human, yeah, absolutely, I want to be an astronaut. I, I have done for years just to go and go somewhere new. You know, I, I grew up wanting to be uh, an explorer and go to the South Pole. Uh, that was my dream when I was a kid, and it just kind of evolved into being an astronaut now. And I think it's very much a similar dream to, to when I was a child. I mean, Jason, obviously, uh, you know, playing a role in a new series of Star Trek. Why do you think it is that that series has resonated now for over half a century? Why do you think it still inspires minds? Why do you think so many people watch it the way they do? Well, the original Star Trek series was born out of the civil rights and uh, human rights struggle and the kind of tumult in the streets. And it presented a version of the world where people weren't judged by or divided by uh, you know, the American-Russia thing, but also by the color of their skin, and now in our series by the sexuality. So it presents this utopian vision of, of what we could be instead of uh, increasingly what we are becoming. Uh, but it's just I was looking at Mars this morning, the way you do, or, or reading up about Mars, because I knew that I was on a panel where I knew absolutely bugger all. Um, and uh, it turns out that it's, it's beyond freezing. It's, been, it's completely inhospitable. And uh, the gravity is appalling, and we're all going to get cancer and, and uh, osteoporosis, and uh, there's no chance of settling. And yet there's so many people who are intent on settling it. And if we do settle it, 
tell me if I'm wrong here, uh, the, the only way it'll be self-sustaining is it has to produce some money, some capital value to pay for itself. And the, the first two businesses that are likely to succeed on Mars to pay for it uh, are because there's no water there, is whoever sets up to sell water to the other idiots who've gone to live on Mars <laughs> and then sell their poo to each other for manure. This is what we're aspiring to, hopefully. Is that right? Well, I mean, the one thing is not quite right by what you said. Mars does reach 20 degrees centigrade at the equator at certain times, and we'd all welcome that today, right? Um, now, of course, it does reach minus 100 at the poles at other times, so it is inhospitable. I mean, the thing we always forget about Mars as well is, is quite how far away it is. So if you, if you take the Earth and scale it down to this big, you shrink it, the Earth by 100 million, then the Earth is just the size of my hands here. The Moon is four meters away, so it's on the corner of the stage. And we've done that, we've been there, and people say, well, we can go to Mars, right? Mars is easy, it's the next step. Mars is two kilometers away in the same scale. So it's a long way to get there, and it's all the stuff about radiation and so on on the way to Mars. I think one of the reasons, though, that people have watched Star Trek, for instance, I, I, I was lucky enough to meet um, Mark at a space sci-fi convention thing, and I'd met an astronaut there, and I met an, uh, the first black female astronaut in America too, and they became astronauts because of Star Trek, because of watching sci-fi, which is kind of extraordinary. And, and I think one of the things that draws people to those uh, scenarios, apart from the fact that it's a, it's a place, it's a vision of us working as a planet together that, that doesn't happen, is, uh, well, they divide into two. There's the technology geeks. So we have cell phones because of, the Trump, because of uh, you know, the, we have speaker phones, unfortunately, because of uh, the communicators. Uh, so people like the idea of the technology. And, uh, and also because uh, there are so many things that are difficult to sort out, so many things about how we are as humans, how we deal with each other. But if we imagine restarting a community, restarting civilization, what will we do? How will we build it? And sci-fi and sci-fact allows us to imagine it. So there is a project, isn't there, in, in Hawaii where they've put people in a dome for a year and work out what happens when you send people away from all the rules that we have now how, and that where they're studying how people fall apart and how people come together and whether we should allow couples to go, for instance, so that we can see how best we should interact as human beings, minus all of the horrible crap that we built up over the last 10,000 years. Actually, there's a really big project ongoing about this called the 100-Year Starship. I met someone from that project recently, and they are thinking about if we're going to go to the nearest star, so we're going to go to Alpha Centauri or Proxima Centauri, four light years Been away. There. Been there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it's going to take a long time to get there, generations of people to get there, and they're going to have their own society. And the people that arrive will never have lived on the Earth. So this place that we all know and love is going to be totally alien to them. But what society will they set up? And they're asking a ton of questions, like, you're going to launch them with only the resources they have for the next thousand years. What clothes do they take with them? You know, silly questions like that. Honestly, that's all they're going to have. What kind of resources do we send with these people? And then we began thinking about, okay, that's great, but probably about 100 years after they left, we're going to send a faster ship. So what happens when they get overtaken? <laughs> How are they going to feel when someone gets there, you know, overtakes them and waves and keeps going? So people are asking these questions. I like the relationship stuff. Like should you send couples? And if you send only singles, is it some kind of space club 1830? <laughs> and are they allowed to couple up? So you, d you don't want anyone to get pregnant at the moment on space missions because it's a nightmare because they, they get disproportionate resources and time and attention. But on the other hand, if you're sending people off into space and no one's allowed to get pregnant, it's not going to be a very long mission, presumably. <laughs> You know, one of the interesting things about Star Trek, of course, is its depiction of actual 
space travel. You know, in many ways, um, I, I guess, Susie, you could probably speak very intelligently on this, an edited version of what people actually go through. You, you actually went through a lot of the training that astronauts do for astronauts do have what it takes. Did you still want to be an astronaut at the end of it all? Oh, yeah, definitely. I do. I, I, more so than actually when I started. So the idea of the show was that we would go through astronaut selection. Um, there'll be 12 of us. Be a bit like the Bake Off, where you start with 12 and you end with one, um, except we were doing astronaut selection. And actually, going through it made me understand a bit more about what they're looking for. Um, and I really enjoyed the whole experience, actually, even though some of the tests were a little bit brutal. Tell us about the Vomit Comet. <laughs> oh, the Vomit Comet. Uh, yeah, that wasn't, wasn't my best moment. The Vomit Comet uh, is a plane that flies in a parabola like this. Um, for us, it lasted an hour, so it's like sitting on a roller coaster for a whole hour. And as you go over the top of the loop, you float for about 20 seconds in, uh, around in, in the inside of the plane. And then as it comes down, you have to lie down flat because you feel twice the force of gravity. And you just wait until the plane comes up and you start floating again. So it's like being on the International Space Station, but it's really disorientating. Um, and it, when I say it's like being on a roller coaster, it makes you feel incredibly sick. So after I saw about some people up in the woods last night going through something yeah. very similar. <laughs> I think. So yeah, that was, that's really... Uh, and, and also, things that you take for granted, you can do. So our test was to assemble a Polaroid camera, fly to Command Hadfield and take his photograph and then sign it, which is a su super simple test. And my really great friend Tim, he's amazing, he's uh, doing a PhD in cosmic chemistry, got to Commander Hadfield and just turned the camera on and off five times and never found the button to take the photograph. And like, this is such a simple thing, but it's really hard to do when you're up there and floating around. You know, it, it kind of touched on something that Jason said just a couple of moments ago. Um, so much of what astronauts have to go through, um, it isn't just about the physical rigors, is it? It's also about learning to work as a team, something Jason talked about, you know, humans working not as nations, but as a species. I mean, Mark, obviously, ESA is a 22-member state. I mean, if you've ever worked on a committee before for a bake sale or anything, you know what that's like. <laughs> 22 countries, it's a slightly different scale of cooperation. How is that even managed? Well, it's because we have a goal in mind. Um, we realize within, within Europe that none of us have the scale needed to put spacecraft together to go to Mercury, uh, to go and rendezvous with a comet, to build a huge telescope to go into space to look for planets around other stars. And we figured out the best way of doing it is together. And of course, there are cultural differences. There are cultural shifts. Um, we benefit from those. And occasionally, we fight over them. But it's, it's that compromise and that ability to take a long-term project to work through struggles, to work through difficult times and achieve a goal. This may have some resonance about some other big international project you're aware of. Um, all right, I won't go there. Um, so it, it's having that goal in mind and having a, a bunch of very seriously motivated people. In fact, some of us don't even see the projects finish. Um, one pro project I'm working on is called the James Webb Space Telescope. It's a collaboration with NASA and the Canadian Space Agency. This year I've been on that project for 20 years and it's still three years from being launched. So, uh, you know, it's, it's having that kind of cathedral building mentality as well as that the greater goal helps us work together. Does that, when, there's, when there's wars or tension between people or diplomats expelled, does that affect the collaboration between Russia, for instance, and the other countries? Well, strangely enough, I mean, you know, with all of the issues with Russia over the last few years, we still have a collaborative mission uh, going to Mars with the Russians. We, we went there in 2016, and it's orbiting Mars today. We're going again in 2020, and the Russians take all of our astronauts to the International Space Station. So in that sense, politics is left behind. Um, it does play a role in the sort of higher level geopolitics. Of course it does. And uh, the questions about how we align ourselves with countries like the US, with China, 
that does intrude. So the Americans can't cooperate with the Chinese, but in Europe we do, for example. So there is a bigger picture story there. But I think that the long-term nature of the missions is really interesting. So, the, for example, the one I'm working on is launching in four months' time. It's going to Mercury. It's called Bepi Colombo. So look out for that launching in October, November of this year. Um, it's going to take seven years to get there. So a really long-term mission, but we've been working on it for decades. And so the idea now is that the missions that we dream up today, are, maybe I will never work on. Maybe I'll be retired by the time they actually get there. And it's for the next generation, basically. Or, or dead. Or dead, yeah. <laughs> Thank Sorry, you. Just or in space, maybe. No, I, met Buzz <laughs> I met Buzz Aldrin at a, a convention. One of the great things about being in Star Trek is you meet these, these people and the, for some bizarre reason they talk to you like, like you have anything to offer. Uh, Buzz Aldrin taught, uh, I didn't realize he was such a scientific genius and he designed propulsion systems. He's an MIT uh, jet propulsion graduate. And he uh, spends his entire life working on a project to colonize Mars and to colonize the moon first to, to kind of practice. And it's a 30-year mission and Buzz is in his mid or late 80s. And I, I didn't want to say you know, <laughs> anything about that, but it seemed very optimistic of him. I mean, th this is the interesting thing, though, isn't it? You know, because it, it, it's not just us thinking selfishly is what can we do for ourselves or what can we do for our nations or species, but not actually seeing the payoff, just taking that long view, which is so interesting because, of course, now space exploration has taken on a very different identity. I think most of us think about it in terms of you know, sort of scientific ideals and like a drive for research, but it's the commercialization of space that seems to be making so many headlines now. So, so here, I mean, you must have thought about it. who do you think should play the, the first gig in space? It's inevitable, isn't it? Come on. Wow. Um, well, it's got to be dereamed, doesn't it? Let, let Brian Cox go up there. Although, although, if that was to like, um, yeah, be the sort of level of talent that we were putting out, we, we might not be invited back for a, a second <laughs> show. <laughs> but at least if anything went wrong, he'd be able to bumble on about it. Not a bad answer. <laughs> but, but, it, but it raises a, a, a serious question, though. I mean, soon we'll be asking these sorts of questions, right? Now, I mean, uh, obviously, Antarctica is very instant, uh, a very good example, right, of a, a place that no country, ideally, can really claim for its own. There are treaties in place to assume, but, but there are no such rules about outer space, necessarily. And, of course, there is a point where corporations, where nations and so on, may, may begin trying to, to, to lay claim to it. Mark, could you, could you clear all that up for us? Well, like Antarctica, there is an Antarct uh, there's a outer space treaty which actually governs the rules that we have when we go into space. Uh, in particular, when it comes to claiming territories, you can't. Uh, using resources, you can, but you can't own the place where the resources came from. So if you like, if in the future we build mines on the moon, you can't actually own the mine. You can own what you take out of the mine. Now, is that consistent with a real business model where you want to corner the resources? Um, Wait, those, th those were drawn up, those plans were drawn up when it was countries, ex exactly. and now it's Elon Musk and, and Richard yeah. Branson and other Well, and, th and that's exactly like the that. issue. I mean, they, they came from a time when space was only accessible to, to nation states or to collaborations like ESA. Um, but certain of the rules, for example, are still in place, and it does beg the question. So one thing that we have is a thing called planetary protection. And that's not actually about protecting you from aliens, you know, his friends. Um, but, or maybe, well, maybe he is one, I don't know. Um, but it's actually about protecting other places from us. So, for example, going to Mars, if we land our spacecraft in places where we suspect there's a possibility of life, where there might be liquid water, there might be the conditions that life might have evolved deep in the past, our spacecraft have to be completely sterilized before they go so they don't affect the life there. 
and that those those rules hold for scientific reasons and also you know in a very sort of high philosophical moral reason if we did go to Mars and we found life there and the first thing we did was kill it with our own bacteria, that would be some kind of interplanetary genocide. It's not a great thing. But the, the commercial firms are claiming this doesn't apply to them and they're just going to go anyway. So I think that comes down to us, the citizens, to speak out about what we think those rules should be. Should, govern, should governments write those rules and we all hold to them? Or should individuals who have enough money to fly to Mars, should they be able to break those rules? And we're, we're at the edge of those questions now, and it's really serious. Well, Starfleet Prime Directive. The Prime Directive is that you don't affect anywhere you land. Exactly, and you know, maybe we should get everybody to sign up to that uh, before we go and land on... I mean, we're trying scientifically, desperately, to learn whether there are places where there might be life on Mars. Um, and yet other people are saying we're going to put boots on the ground. One of my f um, friends in, in America characterizes human beings as filthy meat bags, which is a kind of a description, because we're not just one species, we're thousands of species, we're symbionts, we carry all of these other bacteria with us. So what would that, what would that mean if we just landed on the surface and you know, spat out of the quarter, corner of our mouths? Would we kill an entire civilization? But I think also Elon Musk recently uh, launched up his Tesla, um, you know, the Falcon Heavy launch was amazing, and uh, you know, I'm sure many of us saw it. Um, seeing those rockets come and land simultaneously was just beyond what I could imagine. But actually launching the Tesla into space, that raises other questions. I don't know how well that Tesla was decontaminated. I wasn't part of the process. But it was heading out into the solar system, going to crash into something, possibly. And if it does, again, that's planetary protection issues. So already we're facing these problems. So I just want to ask something of, of the audience. Is it, is it Fermi's paradox or Fermi's theory? So Fermi's a uh, scientist who uh, asked the question, if there's life on other planets, intelligent life on these infinite number of planets, where are they? Uh, where, where are they? Why haven't we seen them? There's the very real possibility that there just is nothing else anywhere else. Um, who thinks there is intelligent life on another planet somewhere? Based on what? But not based on the shows I'm in, surely. But <laughs> where do you stand on it, people who work well, in I, it? I, the counter question is always who thinks there's intelligent life on this planet, but... Uh, <laughs> um, not a lot of hands out there. I mean, there's several, there's several just yesterday I was reading a paper by some uh, actually philosophers who are well-versed in statistics. The Fermi paradox may not exist if you put in the right conditions because it, it relies on, you know, how many planets are there per star, how much, what, what chances there of being water on that planet, what chances there of being stable conditions, and so on and so on. It's a thing called the Drake equation. And they've tried to dis dissolve the Fermi paradox. But there's another really interesting way of looking at the Fermi paradox. And that is that we've been technologically advanced to the point of kind of being able to go into space for less than a century. And any other civilizations out there purely statistically will be either way behind us, millions, billions of years behind, or way ahead of us, just statistically, because the universe is very old. But for every one of those civilizations, there'll be ones who are even older than them. So one of the prime ways of getting out of this dilemma is if you, once you get out into space, the first thing you should do is hide because there's always going to be somebody more advanced that might come and clobber you. And you say that's a bit dystopian because if you assume everybody's out to kill everybody, well, based on humanity, that's perhaps not a bad thing, a uh, bad idea. But if there's only 1% of civilizations which are intent on killing, that's still enough civilization that could kill you. So there's two things that come out of that. One, hide, do not reveal your presence. And two, if you find somebody else who's less advanced than you, kill them because they may grow up to be more advanced than you in the future. So that's a really dark view of where we what the Fermi paradox might be. They're there, but they're hiding. But what about if you come across someone and you just show them that? Hello. 
Oh, show and then, off. And that's just, ah, yes. I'm with the band Access All Areas, Don't Touch Me, or we'll, we'll reduce you to a pile of ash. The universally recognized symbol of the Federation, absolutely. This is the thing about science fiction, right? In many ways, doesn't it do a lot of the mental mapping long before science actually has to grapple with these problems? Because so much of science is speculative, so much of science fiction actually engages with the what-ifs and so on. I mean, Hero, you're a huge fan of science, but you come from a musical background. How do you get into it? How do you get inspired by it all? What, by, by science? That very, very broad subject of science. Um, I actually, I was commuting up to work, picked up a new scientist, started reading, and it captivated me, and I just couldn't put it down. Um, and then from that, I just started going to, um, if you're from London, the Royal Institute do amazing lectures. Like, they're honestly incredible, um, so accessible. I'm, to be honest, a bit of an idiot. I'm literally looking at here going, yeah, I understand something, something. But um, it, it's, uh, yeah, just the Royal Institute. I just started reading stuff. And then I had the pleasure of actually, now we're sort of talking about science fiction, I went to the Royal Albert Hall to watch Interstellar. I don't know if anyone had a chance to see it. It was incredible because it was a lecture from Kip Thorne, who's this incredible guy. And so much of what he was, uh, when he was, I suppose, like talking about how actually the, the sort of science could work in Interstellar, he ended up sort of working a lot with black hole. It's sort of when they were rendering how it was going to look. And he just sort of had this moment of eureka, like, oh my God, I think that is how it would be. So it's just really simple things. That if, if I'm getting it right, he won a Nobel Prize for that film, is that right? He, I, I, no, he did win a Nobel Prize, but not for the film. The, the film won, won lots of Oscars. But how, no, much, how much of actual science is inspired by fiction, by the sci-fi that's come before, television or, or literature? Well, I, you know, I can speak for myself. I was a huge fan of Isaac Asimov. I'm, I'm a bit old, right? So just bear with me. Isaac Asimov. Um, James Burke, who perhaps was on that interface a little bit as a scientist, but for me, it was Doctor Who. I mean, you know, Doctor Who went out there. Star Trek was kind of contemporary, but Doctor Who was ours, if you like, in that way. Now, did I become a scientist because I watched Doctor Who, or did it mesh with something about the way that I thought about the world? It's hard to know. Um, I've probably become a little more dystopian in my view of science fiction, though, as I got older, right? I mean, there's sort of optimistic science fiction, and Star Trek in, in certain ways is that, the idea of the Federation and working together, and then you've got the other extreme, like Blade Runner or... Um, um, Total Recall. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's, you know, there's so much of, of the, the worldview that we're just going to kill each other. If you think of Starship, Starship Troopers, for example, which is fascism in space, um, and that one's coming true. We get to that in a few minutes, right? Um, so, yeah, I, I, I worry a little bit about science fiction being escapism in the sense that when Jules Verne and H.G. Wells wrote about going to the moon, uh, and it happened uh, 100 years later or so, that now when we write science fiction, we as an audience tend to assume that it'll happen as well, that the next step will be taken. Because, you know, it's just, just clever boffins on the stage, they'll make it work. Um, there are certain laws of physics, you can't actually travel faster than the speed of light. I know you have, but I have to say that was just an illusion. Um, so there are certain things that are just not possible. But then well, Armageddon, could that work? I sent Bruce were, Willis off to drill holes in an asteroid that was going to destroy the Earth. You were the smartest man on the planet I, I in was, that but, film. But could but it yeah. work? That's my question. <laughs> well, this is an interesting thing because, you know, people hear about asteroids a lot and they think they're going to come and collide with the Earth, and they do. The dinosaurs are evidence of that. Although if you ever looked at a chicken, I think they've still got their revenge. If a chicken ever looks you in the eye, remember it's a dinosaur. And they're, they're out to get us, the chickens, I'm sure of it. Um, 
So the problem is if you, if you get an asteroid when it's very close to the Earth and you blow it up, then all you've got is lots of bits which are going to hit the Earth rather than one bit. And that means you're going to spread the damage out. So what you really have to do is get to it as early as possible, spot it um, far out in its orbit and deflect it by a tiny amount. And that deflection then builds up over time. So it's useless when it's coming towards the Earth at that last minute. What you they you know, lied to me. It made for a more exciting film than giving something a tiny nudge and then everybody breathing a sigh of relief, right? Um, that wouldn't make a Hollywood film. And that's one of the problems slightly with Hollywood films is that they tend to have to have a cl classical narrative about threat, resolution, love. I mean, Interstellar. Love solved it in the end, was that right? Not physics of, of gravity, but love? I never quite understood that bit. But, uh, um, so we can prevent asteroids hitting the Earth if we detect them early enough, and we're trying. We're, we're, we're looking for them. The dangerous ones, unfortunately, the ones towards the sun, because they're hard to see from the Earth. Because when we look towards the sun, the sun's there. It's hard to see those asteroids. So we need to go into space to look back at those um, from the other side of that part of the population. So we are working on this. It is an issue. But they're not going to hit us in the next thousand or tens of thousands of years. We know all the big ones. We know where they are. We may have smaller ones. So the, the, the threat of asteroids killing us all off, and therefore we must go to Mars today, that's overblown. But in the long term, yes, it's going to happen. Of course, you make a really good point about science fiction, possibly papering over some of the, you could say, the, the, the technical challenges. Uh, but of course, it's not really just the technology that's depicted in science fiction. It's also the concepts, the, the problems that we face as a species and so on. And obviously, one of the ones that's really come up a lot in the headlines recently isn't just the commercialization, but the militarization of space. You know, I'm sure, has anyone here heard of a space force? <laughs> Indeed. So how do we actually feel about that, of course? Because it, it just seems like it should almost be, well, the neutral zone. It should be almost exempt from the problems that we have down here. But how is that actually governed? How, how do we actually avoid it all turning into a, well, a, a bit of a mess? So I think we've had some historical problems with space that, that are kind of have parallels here on the Earth. So for example, we've got all this problem with plastics in the oceans and all the damage that that does. And we see it and we're all really worried about it and we should be. But actually, we have the same problem in space. So space debris is a massive problem looking forward, something that we're trying to solve at the moment. There's literally, I think, 20 million objects in near-Earth space, 120 million in total orbiting the planet. Tiny bits of space debris. We've been launching spacecraft for years and haven't been that responsible about it. They've collided with each other. They've broken into pieces. Of course, the more pieces you have, the more likely a future collision, and so this goes on until you end up with millions of pieces flying around the Earth at speed that we need to worry about. And it's literally, in my opinion, very akin to the problem we have with the plastics in the oceans. And so one thing that we're working on is, for example, now we've caused this massive problem, how do we fix it? And it all comes back to working together and not being individuals. And so a couple of ideas that have just been launched recently, a net that's gonna go out and collect pieces of space debris and bring them back. The other one, a harpoon, that's gonna go up and literally harpoon a large spacecraft that's, that's out of control and bring it back down. But actually, they're the two best ideas. Yeah, <laughs> well, we're open to suggestions. So, you know, if you've got any, got any good suggestions, please, please write in. Um, but we have to work together to solve it, actually. It's not one person's problem. It's not one nation's problem. And I think that's, that's part of what we have to do looking forward. And, and to come to the question about militarization, um, one of the biggest contributors to fragments in recent years was the Chinese. Uh, actively shooting at one of their own satellites to prove that that was possible so that anti-satellite weapons could perhaps be used in the future. And that created a massive shower of fragments which then took out some other satellites which were perfectly well operating. So this idea that we, we 
should have a free-for-all up there and we should be able to launch stuff and, and do military tests. Of course, in the 1960s, we launched nuclear weapons into space and detonated them in the upper atmosphere, I mean, way up in space, uh, and killing satellites off with electromagnetic pulse. So this is not the first time this has arisen, um, but it's a, as, as the world devolves back to nationalism and, and is, is you know, going back to this idea that you, know, you have to be great, you have to demonstrate your power, these, this is a, an arena in which it will play out. I mean, as it is at the moment, every few weeks we have to move the entire International Space Station up or down in its orbit to avoid stuff coming towards it. And those are the things we know about. Um, and these are typically centimeter-sized particles and bigger. We know about those. But millimeter-sized particles can puncture spacesuits and kill astronauts instantly. We see them pitting the outside of the space station. You bring stuff back. You see there are holes. Um, there was a leak in one of the previous space stations in, in the Salyut, which was probably caused by a micrometeoroid or a fragment. Um, so, so this is the problem, is that, that the unintended consequences of militarizing space, I mean, the intended consequences is to take the high ground and take power, which may be bad in itself, but the unintended consequences is you render it uninhabitable or unusable uh, by any resource whatsoever. We may not, there may be a future in which we cannot launch through a low Earth orbit because there's a 100% danger of getting blown out of the sky. At the risk of sounding over-politically correct, which is not really a risk at latitude, uh, do we need more women in space and in the space program to stop that happening? Because that's part of why we're here. I don't mean why we're here on the planet. I met you and you said we do this Space Rocks outreach program to encourage more people to enter our industry, to study and to encourage their children to study the right subjects, which are, I, I don't know what the right subjects are, but is it partly because it's all been men that these problems have arisen? Well, I'm the wrong person to answer the question apart from the fact that I'm one of the older men who went into it many years ago. But at European Space Agency, we have, I mean, this to sound very worthy, but we have a very strong program of encouraging... Um, diversity in the people that we're hiring now. We have an agency that was mostly recruited in the 80s and there's lots of people now retiring. We lose 40% of our staff in the next 10 years and this is the perfect moment for new people to come in and reflect the diversity internationally, gender, uh, sexually, all the uh, d disability, all the diversities. We need more people there because it, you're absolutely right. There has been a kind of a male, white, gung-ho, conquering space mentality that I grew up with, and I, you know, maybe I, I need to fight it harder, but I try to. Um, but it, it, it's there, and it's an engineer thing slightly. It's kind of, you know, that, that those elbows out, sort of car in space, right? That attitude that this is what it means to do space. But, you know, Susie and, and, and Hero can speak more to, you know, what, you know what, what they bring to it, which is definitely needed. Well, actually, I think as a scientist, I didn't really have a platform at all. I didn't think anyone would ever want to listen to what I had to say until I did this random reality television series, which kind of gave me a platform to go and talk to kids about being a scientist. And so I've spoken to 25,000 children in the last eight months in their classrooms oh, <laughs> about being a scientist. And actually, I don't need to go and say, oh, there aren't enough women inside. I don't even need to have that conversation. All I have to do is be a scientist and be female and show them that actually they can do it too. If I can do it, they can too. And there's a lot of people who are, are beginning to do this. And I think, I think we just haven't had very many female role models. Hasn't been something that um, maybe young girls have aspired towards because they just couldn't see themselves doing it. And so I think it's actually a massive part of our job. I, I, there's a quote from Brian Cox actually recently where he said that public education and outreach is as important as the science itself, and I really believe that, actually, so that's a big part of my job now. 
And, and just before Hero, I just wanted to qualify what Jason said. It's not really about uh, only about bringing people into our industry, our business. I mean, space is very exciting, very interesting to us, but we realize that there are many other technical problems, um, political problems, issues that need us to actually look at things with a careful, rational outlook and try, you know, do numbers add up. Um, are experts actually able to speak on things? Um, we need people to run our nuclear power stations while we still have them. We need people to solve climate change. We need people to look at the plastics in the ocean. And, and we need people to vote and vote rationally. And if we can do a tiny little part there by demonstrating that we can land through rational thinking, through international collaboration, long-term planning, we can land a probe on a comet moving at 50,000 kilometers an hour in the outer solar system. If that's the inspiration which then gets you thinking about how we did that, you know, that that's what we're after here. We're not a, you know, Come and work with us in space, but also think about the planet you live on, because that's, that's where we all are. You were telling a really, sort of quite a heartwarming story on uh, your daughter, when she, um, um, with her science teacher, and I cannot believe there are people in education who would actually say this to a young girl. Well, my, my, when I met Mark, we met uh, Samantha, who is uh, the only female astronaut at the moment in the, on the international, uh, who's been to the International Space Station from uh, she, she's the only Eurasia. European astronaut in the current core. We have another uh, French female astronaut, right. Claudie Enire. She's been to the space station as well. But of the current group, she's one. So I met her with my 12-year-old daughter, and I said, look, Ruby, this is uh, Samantha. She's an astronaut. She's been to space, going to space, and uh, you could do that. You're good at science. And she went, no, but I want to have kids. And I went, what do you mean? She said, well, my physics teacher said, you, you, you can't have children if you want to go to space. And Samantha said, well, these are my two kids, so no one stopped me. So it, uh, but the physics teacher obviously thinks that women don't have a place in space. Yeah, I think Samantha was completely shocked by that. I mean, she's probably heard everything, but there she was with her baby, and you know, she's had the baby since she's come back to space. She's in training to go back into space, possibly to the Chinese space station with ESA, maybe back to the International Space Station. Maybe she'll go to the moon. This is not a barrier at all. And many of the uh, female American astronauts have had children. It's not an issue. And yet, here we have a teacher. And I'm sure it was a man, right? I don't know. I don't want to name and shame <laughs> well, Maybe, them. maybe. Yeah. I could text and get the name and say <laughs> yeah. it out loud if you felt it was yeah, exactly. important. <laughs> of we'll course, we'll send you around with pitchforks to the person's house. This is all really interesting, of course, but the assumption is humans will go into space and that we actually need to. I mean, one of, one of the biggest developments right now, and so much of space exploration is always about how far we can go, what we can put there, what we can discover. But should it really be us going up there, or shouldn't it just be robots? I mean, developments in artificial intelligence are so staggering now. Perhaps it doesn't have the same romance as a human exiting its own environment, but it certainly has a certain practical aspect to it all. I mean, obviously, with some uh, sinister implications, if I get my sci-fi right, you know, um, a bit of a worry when machines start answering back, and they don't always agree with you, certainly. But then again, does it actually have to be us out there? But it, was, it was something you were saying, actually, a little bit um, earlier um, backstage. Um, that people actually in the International Space Station aren't necessarily reporting things for fear that they're not going to be able to go on other missions. And so I suppose at least with artificial intelligence, you're going to be getting the, the proper facts. But then also that you lose the human element. Then there, there is no discovery. You're just watching a crappy film. Well, it, Interstellar would be very different if none of them were actually in space, right? This is the thing. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I think perhaps there is a dramatic element to sending a human in space, and let's not diminish the achievements of any of the astronauts, be they male or female, going out there and risking their lives to, to, to advance the human species. Uh, the question really is, um, do we have to? Is it actually necessary? So we're building an instrument, as I mentioned. We've built an instrument that's going to the planet Mercury. 
Um, I'm really inspired by this mission. I've been working on it for seven years now. It's finally launching seven years till it gets there. I feel really strongly about how amazing this mission is going to be. It's really revolutionary. But can I get all of you to be inspired about a robot that we're sending to the planet Mercury? Well, I'm going to try my best. But um, now let's talk about Tim Peake going into space. Uh, I bet everyone here knows Tim Peake, would recognize him in the streets, maybe saw uh, some footage from his mission. Getting people into space is very different from launching a robot from a, from a human perspective. And actually, if we want to inspire more people to think about being scientists, then the human astronaut um, side of it, I think, is really important for that, um, amongst other things. I mean, I think I would, because I would disagree, if only in the one sense that uh, there are lots of people in the audience here who Alex mentioned at the beginning, the Rosetta mission, which went to uh, Comet churyumov gerasimenko along with the Philae probe. We made cartoons about those missions. And in fact, there are cartoons now for Bepi Colombo. Uh -huh. And they had remarkable engagement, in fact. They brought people in emotionally into the story. And people said, well, aren't you trivializing the, the story of these, these machines which are going out and doing this? And well, we, we anthropomorphize them to a point, but we never lied about the science. We never tried to kind of get sympathy by, by faking things. And so I think you can, the, it really surprised us how much the robots grab people. That was an amazing program. But, but when you look out beyond that, I mean, you mentioned earlier on the, the program going to the nearest stars. Personally, my, my take is that we will not do that because as wetware, we're, we're just not made in any possible way to cross light years of space at the kind of speeds we can achieve today. But w you can conceive in a 50 to 100 year time scale and being able to download yourself into your iPhone. Scary already, right? We're doing it through Facebook. We're downloading ourselves into Facebook all the time. People know us because of what we've just typed or what we've followed. 50 or 100 years, maybe we put ourselves into robots, and those robots could travel across to the nearest stars. Now, is that dystopian? Is that scary? Um, but frankly, it's a, it, it seems to me a lot easier than putting us. And we, we're, we're symbiotic with the Earth. This is where we grew up. This is where we live. This idea that we can just cross space just because we can imagine it doesn't necessarily mean it's true. But, we, like you said at the beginning, we've got enormous problems on this planet right now. Uh, just problems of our diminishing resources and how we're, we're burning them up. And, and symbols are so important. Obama getting elected was a massively important symbol. What he did or didn't do in office was maybe less important than the fact that he was elected and what that did to generations of people who felt they were excluded by color. Um, so I don't know, there's something about putting, it, whether the individuals themselves either end up healthy or have anything particularly profound to say, Neil Armstrong's script was written for him, Small Step for Man and all this stuff, um, uh, is less important than the fact that we're seen to collaborate, particularly when it comes to th how much we need to collaborate right now on the planet for the various things that are, are troubling us. Although, I don't know if this is a great story to tell, I, I, one of the privileges of, of doing things like Armageddon is we got to shoot at uh, Cape Kennedy, or was it Cape Canaveral? I can't remember what it's called now, whatever it was, in, in Florida, and, uh, and meet people who had been, uh, meet other astronauts and people who had been to space. And uh, I was there with the, all the actors in, in Armageddon, and, and I was talking to a four-star general who had been, I guess he hadn't been to the moon, but he'd been on the space station, and I said, can I ask you something, general? He said, sure, and I said, when you look back on the Earth and you see this big ball, mostly of water and, and a little bit of green, do you feel more or less American, or do you think, I'm a citizen of the Earth. Well, these national boundaries are absurd. And he went, that's a really good question. Can I ask you one? And I said, yeah. He said, do me more tits real? And I went, <laughs> what? He goes, those things are unbelievable. And, uh, and I was reminded that they are just military men in the end that we send up there. <laughs> Possibly not the most profound philosophers, but symbolically they have great importance.
I was just going to say, you know, that, that this issue about human nature comes into all of these things, and there's an example of that. You, you hear a lot of discussion now about perhaps potentially saving the human race by sending a million people to Mars, right? A kind of a big breeding population which will save, a, save us if there is a massive collision from an asteroid or Yellowstone goes up, a supervolcano erupts, or climate change. You know, whatever we do with climate change, as bad as it is, it will never be as unpleasant as it is to live on Mars. So never get the idea it's going to save us from climate change. But it, just take that for a moment. A million people, we send them to Mars. Well, there are basically two ways you can do that. You either send rich people who can afford to send themselves, and they're all going to turn up on Mars and say, well, this is fantastic. Who's going to clean the toilets? Um, so that's not a good idea to send the richest people on the planet. The other one is you do it by lottery, and you send one in 10,000 of the population of the Earth to go to Mars. You don't know anybody who's going, because you don't know 10,000 people each. Rarely do you know that many people. So where does your altruism end? How much do you want to save the human race that you want to pay for somebody you don't know going to save the human race? I suspect Luddism would come in and we'd actually blow the spaceships up and say, stick here with us, we'll all die together. Human nature. I don't actually see us being that generous and altruistic to people going, I'm going to save you, don't worry, have a nice life on the earth as it dies. It's not, not going to be the way it works. So is, that, is any of the stuff that we are discovering from the work we do in space likely to lead to solutions other than political solutions uh, for our current problems on Earth? Well, we have a very, we've we talked a little bit about missions to Mercury, missions to comets, um, telescopes looking out into the deep universe, looking all the way back to the beginning of time. Uh, but we have a very vigorous program of monitoring climate change, uh, monitoring the Earth's environment in the European Space Agency. So we have a whole fleet of satellites called the Sentinels, which are up there measuring ocean salinity, measuring uh, deforestation, uh, measuring the temperature rise in the upper atmosphere. We're just about to launch a new mission called Aeolus, which is going to be a big telescope but looking back down at the Earth, sending a laser beam into... What's wrong with laser beams? Pointing down from space, right? That's great. Uh, pointing down through the Earth's atmosphere, but little bits of it will be reflected off the layers, and we can measure the speed of the wind around the whole Earth. And that's something we will monitor because that's increasing as climate change increases. Um, Are you sure that's really happening? Because Donald Trump says that's a Chinese hoax. Well, I'm an expert, so what do I know, right? Um, um, so we play an incredibly important role in providing the raw data there. But of course, it's up to politicians and the general public to react to that. All we can do is put the facts out there. We can't tell you to turn the light off, turn the air conditioning off, but we can show you that the glaciers are disappearing, that 17, uh, 16 of the 17 hottest years on record are from 2000 to 2018. The Earth is warming, and this crazy long hot summer that we've had this year is not like 1976, where it was an aberration. This is going to happen every year, repeatedly. There'll be some years when it doesn't, but it's going to be increasingly like this. And we, we need, as a space agency, to provide input to that. Um, so I, we can learn from other planets as well. We can look at exoplanets. We can look at Mars and Venus and how their, their climates changed over time. But looking back down at the Earth and providing the raw data is vitally important. And of course, it does raise a different kind of... I'm sorry, did you have something? No, no, it's okay. It raises a big question, of course. You know, it's just, you know, um, you know, in the annals of history, maybe the last 500 years or so, the word colonization doesn't usually carry positive connotations because of the issues that it throws up, certainly. But yet, the idea of Mars colonization is frequently thrown up as a, 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 almost like a plan B, while we actually have a plan A here, which is 
Is that right? Is it is it possible for us to even go there? Or does it really solve a problem that we really should be worrying about here? Well, I think we have massive problems here we need to solve first. And actually just thinking about going to colonize Mars, we, we watch these films and they're great and they show us all living in bubbles happily on the surface of Mars. The reality is that by the time you get there, you'll probably have pretty severe cancer um, because the radiation environment is so terrible. We'll probably have to live underground, perhaps, to try to protect ourselves from the radiation environment. Mars doesn't have a magnetic field anymore. It switched off about four billion years ago. And as a result, we have no protection from um, the solar energetic particles and cosmic rays. Um, and so as, as a result, of course, there's going to be massive advances in technology before we can go ahead and do that. So the idea of these crazy people who say, yeah, launch me to Mars tomorrow, well, you literally probably wouldn't even get there or def definitely wouldn't get back again um, alive. So there's, there's massive problems with this idea. It's certainly a worry, um, you know, and in a deeper subject than we actually had time for, because I think we actually want to uh, turn to the audience. Um, there's a very nice man at the end of the barrier there. That's uh, John O'Sullivan. Uh, he is going to take your questions, if you should have any. Uh, please, John, go ahead. Anyone? Question Hello. for the panel? Hello. So if anyone would like to ask a question, I have a microphone and stuff. Um, shall I come over to that nice lady over there? Yes. I can't get around to everybody. We've only got 15, so I might have to be rude. Could you give us your name and um, go for it? Speak clearly into the microphone. Um, hi, I'm Annabelle. Um, do you have any advice for someone who is sort of more of an artist but is still interested in working in the space sector and influencing that kind of thing? Well, absolutely. We uh, at ESA in the last few years, we've had an artist in residence program um, where we invite people to come in and it doesn't really matter, you know, they, they, they might want to um, riff off the things we're doing, they might want to bring their views in and we've, we've had two very successful um, artists, Aoife van Linden Toll came in and learned about explosions in space and then proceeded to blow up a fire station in Austria with her show, so that was kind of interesting. Um, and Sarah Petkus came from the United States and she made a kind of an anthropomorphic robot, an art robot that she would like to send to Mars to actually do art projects on Mars. I mean, it's an art project in itself. She doesn't genuinely think that it's going to Mars, but she's given it AI to be an artist in outer space. So we've done that. We've made science fiction films. We've worked with lots of musicians. We love to work with musicians and with artists of every, every flavor. That's why we're doing this. It's about that crossover. So if you want to come up afterwards and have a word, um, I'll give you a card. We can make a link. But have a look on our website as well, because we're doing more and more of these things. And actually, I think it's important to note that people think of the space industry as full of scientists, which it is. Um, but as, we, as the industry changes and we commercialize the space industry and we go into looking at lots of new business opportunities, we need more than just scientists. We need people who are experts in business, in law. We need architects. We need people interested in society and how society functions. So actually, I think as we go on in time, there's going to be much more many more opportunities for people from a whole range of backgrounds to be in involved in the space industry. So who do they approach? Let's say you work in some discipline. You go, I love space. I'd like my work to be connected with that. They, they phone you? Or the, well, how, do they, how do they connect themselves? Please don't themselves necessarily phone me. <laughs> <laughs> text. They text you. <laughs> there are programs associated with cross-disciplinary work. Um, so, yeah, look, look and find people who are also interested in that kind of thing. You can find all of our profiles on our website saying what we're working on and what we're interested in. And, yeah, reach out to people if you have an interest. Um, I think. And for us, just go to www.esa, European Space Agency, .int, and uh, there's... Up there on the top, there'll be careers, and indeed, exactly that. There are careers all the way across the agency. In fact, I have to bemoan the fact that in ESA, ten, only 10% of the staff are scientists. There's just way too many engineers um, building things. But um, 
engineers, lawyers, unfortunately, yeah, we've got lawyers, uh, but people who work in graphics as well, people who work in communications, people who work in the outreach domain, very important for what we do. We're a civilian space agency, you pay for us, we need to tell you what we're doing. John, I think we have a young man there. Well, I'm, I'm just over here, and by okay. the way, we have Mark's uh, mobile phone number if anybody wants it later, to <laughs> give him a ring. It'll be on the website. a young lady here, do you want to stand up and give us your name? She's in a rather fetching t-shirt. If all the oils and resources run out in the few next hundred years, what will happen next? Everybody's looking at me. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a really, you know, it's a fantastically good question. We know that oil has fueled this enormous technology boom of the 20th century that put us where we are, whether it's energy, cars, pharmaceuticals, plastics, Oil has made that, and oil will go away. Uh, fossil fuels, and if, so firstly, they will go away because we're running out of them. Secondly, they need to go away because when we use them, we put CO2 into the atmosphere. So we have to stop using them sooner than they run out. So we need renewable energy, and I, just driving here this morning from the ferry, lots of new solar panels out here in the Suffolk countryside. I live in the Netherlands. The place is covered in windmills, modern ones, not just the old ones. There's windmills here. But we still need to bite the bullet and realize we need a base load. We still need a way of getting to nuclear fusion. Nuclear fusion is simulating the inside of a star, but inside a big reactor. It's, it's, it's got the word that nuclear. safe. It's a very different kind of nuclear to nuclear fission, right? Um, but we've got to get there somehow. And so we've really got to be serious about energy change in the next 10, 20 years. Maybe we do need, and I, many people will disagree with this, but maybe we do need to build more modern fission reactors to have a base load because you can't have renewables on all the time. It does, it's not always windy. It's not always sunny. Storage systems, batteries, yes. But energy reliance needs to switch, and it needs to switch now. It's not about when the oil runs out. It's about the CO2 that's going into the atmosphere. There's no... Uh, nascent project to harness and create energy from space or solar power in space in <coughs> well, a safe way. Well, there's always this solar power generation idea, massive solar panels in space, but you've got to get it down to the ground. And dropping a cable to the earth doesn't quite work. Uh, beaming it down through microwaves, you know, fries everything between it and the earth. Yeah, we did a research project on that, actually, which was essentially if we beam the energy down, do we fry all the birds that fly through the beam? Yeah, yeah. The answer is maybe, by the way. So. Yeah. <laughs> So, we, you know, science fiction is great, and I, we all love science fiction, all of us up here on the panel, but there's a point at which science fact have to bite, and we really just have to, you know, we, the other thing we have to do, and hopefully you'll go home tonight, if your mum or your dad turns a light on and leaves it on, you be the one to turn it off. If there's nobody, in, even if they're in the room, no, if, if, there's, if there's nobody in the room, just turn the light off. I have my two kids here, they just don't know about turning lights off. I mean, it's crazy, just turn it off. And those tiny, tiny things, we need to start doing those as well. I think we have time for a couple more here, we John. Should, we've only got a few minutes, so we better keep moving. Does this young man have a question here? Are you sure you want to do us? All right, here we go. Introduce yourself, please. Um, hello. Um, I'm Victoria. I'm Akira's mom. He's feeling a bit shy. Um, he did a science project at school about could we live on Mars, and um, the conclusion was about radiation, not yet. But he had a question about what, what would be the solution in terms of water supply. Well, you know, Mars has water on it. It has a roughly a million cubic kilometers of water under the surface in ice. So there is water there if you land in the right place. Is it really water that, you know, we, would we have to clean it? Is it loaded with salts? Is it loaded with other yucky materials? We'd have to purify it first. 
Um, so, and, and water is actually a good way of shielding yourself from radiation. So Susie mentioned going underground into, into tunnels, and you would surround yourself with water as well, and that absorbs high-energy particles. And that's needed. It's probably one of the shielding ways of getting to Mars in the first place is to live in a bubble surrounded by water uh, in the spacecraft, which you would consume. So it's kind of, I'd never really thought of it this way. You would consume the clean water and then maybe fill up the other bit with yellow water. So after time, your spaceship would turn from nice, clean... No, anyway, you don't, let's not go there. And isn't it 95% carbon dioxide as well? So it's unbreathable, the atmosphere. It, there's no oxygen on Mars, effectively. You would have to get it from somewhere else. You'd have to break it, crack it from water. Yeah, there's some, there's some idea about maybe getting, getting some resources from the atmosphere of Mars as well. As we find out more about the atmosphere of Mars and more about the constituent parts, perhaps we can develop some technology to, to give us some resources from the atmosphere. But again, it's Subterranean ice. I've seen Total Recall, right? What? Total Recall? There's Total ice. Re yeah, exactly. It's all ice on the ground. Blow up a nuclear bomb. It all comes out. We're all happy. John, a couple Alex, more questions. Where are you directing me, Alex? Down here, okay. The doorway, John. I'm coming. I'm coming to the doorway next, Mr. Isaacs. Um, hello, could you just introduce yourself and speak nice and loud, eh? My name's Ripley, and I would like to know what warp speed is. Oh yes, I think this one for Jason. Marvelous. <laughs> Mr. Isaac, stand up. Come on, this is, this is it now. This, this, is, this, is, this is what I've been waiting warp for. Warp speed. When you go at warp speed, is that somebody off screen goes three, two, one. <laughs> and then you go to the other side like that. Warp speed is a real thing. Am, am I correct? There are people are working on warp speed. You might have to explain what it is. Warp speed is very, very fast. That's the lay term. I could go into science stuff, but it, it would just baffle you. And I wouldn't be able to keep up, so... No. Uh, by the way, we have a spore drive now. I don't know if you've seen Star Trek Discovery that makes warp speed look like a snail. So, <laughs> Alex, I'm ready here, over here. Yep. Same, same routine. Indeed, down there by the book. Hello, my name's Mike. Um, from a previous question or answer, you get the impression that scientists generally are very happy and they feel it very nice to create the data. It's somebody else's messy job to actually sell it to the public and to the politicians. Isn't it a cop-out? Shouldn't scientists be taking a much more dirty view of the world and getting involved? Well, actually we do. Um, so there's a lot of scientific committees, uh, government committees that scientists sit on. Um, so there's that side of things. A lot of us do public outreach and engagement. We are talking with people. I think that... The idea that scientists sit in their offices and do their own thing and don't speak to anyone, I think that's quite an old-fashioned idea, and I think it's changing, and I think it should change. So, yes, I think we need to move more in that direction, but I think we are, actually. Yeah, I'm sorry if I gave the wrong impression there, but we are on the committees, uh, um, the IPCC, for example. Lots of our scientists are involved there, which write the intergovernmental reports about climate change, not just saying, make of it what you will, but these are the recommendations, this is what's going to happen. So, yeah, if I gave the impression that we, we walk away from the data afterwards, that's not true. But we absolutely need people to be educated in society. We need good teachers. We need the governments to value education to the point where people can pass that information and vote accordingly and pressure their government. So I'm not saying we're not engaged, but we're a tiny minority of the population of the country, and we need everybody else to engage with the subject as well. So that was really where I was going to. We will put the numbers out there, and we will advise, but you need to seize onto it because we can't make the difference on our own. There's nothing to do when there's a moron in, in the White House who just dismisses all scientific information and, and uh, opinion and then appoints someone to dismantle your, the, the Environmental Protection Agency. Right? So that's true, but actually that raises an interesting point. I, I know that um, the former governor of New York, for example, Mike Bloomberg, has put an awful lot of money into replacing the money that was taken away by the government to do that research into climate change. So 
that's incredibly uh, good of him to go ahead and do that. I think it's an amazing thing, but how sad that we have to have a very rich billionaire to go and replace what the government should be doing. It's a sign of the times. Uh, uh, our time is coming to end, John. I think, I we, think have we have time have for one just one more, more question. question. Yeah. Um, and this young lady, hello. Could you speak loudly to the microphone, introduce yourself and a question? Um, my name is Agatha, and my question is, how can we live on Mars if there isn't any gravity? There is a little bit of gravity. It's not like there isn't any at all. It just means that if you were to jump right now, you'd probably hit your head on the roof of the tent. So <laughs> there's lots of reasons why having less gravity can be a bit damaging to people that we might need to worry about, but there's enough to keep us on the surface so we won't all float away. What if we sent only very heavy people? Would that, <laughs> that wouldn't work. <laughs> I'm not gonna comment on that. <laughs> yeah, Mars has about 40% of the gravity that the Earth does. It's a fairly small planet, but if you went to Jupiter, for example, if you could put a, a solid surface somewhere in the atmosphere of Jupiter, you would feel gravity maybe 20 times as much as you feel. So that would be a, you know, in a way, Mars is a good thing. It's got enough gravity to hold us down, but it's kind of a relaxing place. You could break, break all the world records for high jump and long jump and everything else in one afternoon without really trying. Um, but it's also, it's along with no magnetic field, it's the reason Mars is so different to the Earth is because it only has a little bit of gravity, and that's why we, we go there to study it. We have robots driving around on the surface trying to understand Mars. So uh, maybe, maybe you will be the first person to go to Mars and be the person that breaks those records. How, would you like to do that? Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> all right, sadly, that's just about all the time we have uh, for today. Uh, but can you give a, a very warm round of applause for our amazing panel? If you want to learn more about what we do, just go to spacerocksofficial.com. Thank you so much for your time. We'll see you soon. Thanks.